The Academic Podcast Agency. Over the last 50 years, more than one trillion dollars in development-related aid has been transferred from rich countries to the continent of Africa. Yet the controversial economist and Zambian-born Dambisa Moyo believes that such financial aid has been and continues to be an unmitigated political, economic and humanitarian disaster. She argues that aid has become a damaging cultural commodity and that the West should aspire towards an aid-free solution to development. But how could the gifting of finance from the global north to the global south be a bad thing? And what does an aid-free solution to development even mean, let alone look like? For this episode of The Glass Beat Game, I have come to Kenya in Africa to try and understand the meaning of development and its relationship to aid. What does it mean for one country to consider itself more developed than another? What role does government, business or NGO play in addressing the energy and food needs for some of the poorest people on the planet? And how do those on the ground carrying out development understand their motivations for the work they do? The time through which we are now passing is of exceptional character. This is... My dear friends, inform, investigate, and engage. This is the home of Sam and Ellen Doobie. And at any time during the day, their house is full of local Kenyan children that have come around to play with their three-year-old daughter, Senna, and one-year-old, Max. Sam is a doctor of renewable energies and we have known each other since we were both in our early 20s and he was studying in London. No stranger to the expat existence, Sam's childhood was spent living in Swaziland, Bangladesh and Nigeria, and so it makes perfect sense that my friend should wish to raise his own family in Kasumu, Kenya, a place of outstanding natural beauty and somehow an obvious paradise for young children. My name is Sam Duby. I have a company in Kenya called Steamaco. We provide tools for people to build, manage, and monetize rural solar microgrids, providing people with solar electricity that they can pay for using their telephones. My name is Elaine Duby. I am married to Sam. And for the last five years, I've been running a Kenyan NGO that promotes permaculture to build both sustainable livelihoods and sustainable food security. Do you see a relationship between what you've been doing Mm. and what he's been doing? Absolutely. In permaculture, you know, the the energy area is like one of the areas that you want to look at. And so it's it's enormously linked. I should say we did not come to Kenya to do any of this. Specifically, (laughs) we came to Kenya. Uh, It wasn't supposed to be for very long and we've been here almost six years now. Many people would consider Sam and Ellen's work to be development. But the associations that come with this label are simply not nuanced enough to describe their particular relationship to the communities with which they interact. Crucially, they are fully aware that Kenya is giving them a lifestyle of great value and that their work is by no means a selfless or charitable act. 
I have an issue with the word development because I think the way that it's been envisioned since the 50s or whatever, I mean, it's evolved a lot, but I think the area of development needs to ask itself quite a lot of questions about what it's really about. I would say what we do is utterly development, and it's not even my opinion. Um, people running the world's biggest development organizations will tell you that access to energy is a prerequisite for development. Whether it's a Millennium Development Goal, whether it's the head of the UN, energy is seen as a fundamental to any kind of development. The word itself and the concept of it implies a a movement, doesn't it? So you can really only have development if you are addressing somebody who is underdeveloped. So this idea that you're going from an underdeveloped state to a developed state. In respect to Africa or to Kenya, the cradle of civilization, what does that mean? I think if you asked the average person in development what they would love Kenya and all the other countries that they worked in to develop into, it would be pretty unrealistic. I think people's expectations of what they're doing, why they're doing development, and people's reasons for being here are often two very different things. In order to explore the meaning of development further, I spoke to Robert Byrne at the University of Sussex. Robert's research has focused on critical understandings of what role energy as development has had in places such as Kenya as well as the wider impact of development as a social phenomenon. Development has a history, and it's certainly not always a nice history. Uh, if we think back to the kind of early, what we might call colonial kind of interventions in, in Africa and elsewhere, uh, which go back a very, very long way, um, a lot of that was imposing, you know, the particular colonialists' uh, worldview which some would argue is exactly what we're doing now. You know, so whether it was kind of, you know, a religious worldview or it was about um, sort of modernising the, the primitives or whatever, uh, you know, that kind of development, you know, is clearly what many of us would look back in horror at now and hope we're not, you know, promoting some equivalent. There are lots of questions as to whether we are or not, and, and it's it's... It's never really very clear, uh, I think, whoever is involved. So here we are in the, in the lab. As you can see, there's bits of machine and electronics and circuit boards and bit harvesters and power supplies, various nuts and bolts scattered about the place. This might look like chaos, but it's not at all. Over the last six years, Sam's company, Steamaco, has evolved from an NGO that created solar grid and wind turbine infrastructure to a private company that now utilises mobile phone technology in a way that allows people to buy electricity. Uh, likewise, um, if someone uses power or if the solar panels are generating power, that information will be aggregated and collected by the Think and sent up to the internet. So you can just check everything is, is doing okay from your plush office in New York City where you've got a portfolio of 300 microgrids around sub-Saharan Africa. Is that the dream, to be sat in some kind of uh, sprawling metropolis electrifying Africa? Not for me. Not for me. But if I can be the bridge between yeah. those moneyed 
plush office dwellers in New York City looking to make a quick buck and people in Africa needing power and to link the two up and have their capital being used and leveraged to provide power for a rural African through bits of technology like that, that is the role I am very happy to play. Sam's working trajectory had very much been that a number of years ago he went out and began an NGO with the objective to provide electricity for rural Kenya. And at some point, it made more sense to him to achieve these ends by switching from an NGO to a private company, that actually it was more effective in achieving what he wanted to achieve. So I wonder if you have any thoughts about that as it relates to your work. I've heard Sam present actually on Steamico or Access Energy, I think it was at the time, and he told something of that story, that change from NGO to private business. And I can imagine in, in Kenya coming up a, against a lot of problems running an NGO and trying to do sort of rural electrification. But at the same time, there may be actually certain benefits to doing this kind of work through an NGO. But, it, you know, as always, it depends on the details, what you're actually doing and trying to achieve and hoping to achieve and so on. But my sort of bottom line is that there are different needs amongst different groups. And so you can achieve quite a lot through a private business where people pay for the service, but not everybody can pay for the service. It seems to me that there is a role for other kinds of uh, activity, whether it's NGO, government, whatever, trying to meet or help to meet the needs of those who, you know, are so poor they can't take part in markets and so on. So, you know, there seems to me there's a the decision to make there. Do you say, well, okay, you can't take part in the private market, so, you know, sorry, it's, you know, you're on your own. Or do you think, well, actually, we could, for example, provide services through the public sector so that people get some benefits from sort of modern energy services. In describing the diverse activity of foreign aid, it may be possible to roughly distinguish between three different types. One, emergency relief for natural or humanitarian disasters. Two, the work of NGOs and charities. And three, government-to-government -government loans or grants, which make up by far the biggest contribution of foreign capital. And whilst criticism exists regarding the true efficacy of all of these platforms, Sam's work with Steamaco suggests that a private business model may be able to offer distinctive benefits in achieving something nearer an aid-free model of development. And further blurring the line between the role of all of these development platforms is the technological fixes enabled by the ubiquity of mobile phones. Okay, so Will, your first job is to find an impressive chat. Okay. Do you know what to look for now? Cannot be underestimated just how transformative mobile phone technology has been for those living in traditional agrarian societies. In 2007, the M-PESA platform was born, essentially manipulating an existing platform that allowed phone owners to share airtime credits. M-PESA now makes these credits cashable, and it has created a nationwide banking system which facilitates the movement of capital amongst individuals and businesses in a way that was previously considered unimaginable. I accompanied Sam to one of the many green M-Pesa shacks that populate the high streets of every Kenyan town. I'm just going to get some money from this, this shop. 
So M-Pesa is a money, mobile money service that allows anyone, you don't need a bank account, you just need a mobile phone and an ID card, to have a mobile wallet, if you like. So if I am a banana seller in a rural village, I will sell my bananas at the market during the day and have a wedge of cash that I don't want to carry around with me for obvious reasons. I'll go to the green shack that is in every village, probably several in every village, which is the M-Pesa shack. I'll give my cash to the M-Pesa agent and they will put it onto my phone. They will send a message to my phone which will translate that cash into M-Pesa, which is shillings on my phone. So what I'm doing is from my phone, I'm saying withdraw 1,000 shillings from that specific agent. Okay. I enter the details into my phone, put my PIN number in, and then it's asking me to confirm withdraw cash from agent 47922, 1,000 shillings. Yes, please. <laughs> okay. And then it tells me who she is, Prestige Matiarero. Is this your name? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Shopping center near much Rootsag. It's then safe, but also it means immediately I can send money to my son in Mombasa to pay for his university fees. I can send the money to a hospital where my grandmother is to pay for her medicine. I can send some money to my wife who is buying some rice down the road. It immediately becomes incredibly liquid from phone to phone. And that's a very, very powerful thing. There we are. Signed a little book right by my name, Sam Doobie. There we are, and I take a nice crispy 1000 shillings. Thank you. M is particularly fascinating because although it is unquestionably a mobile banking business, it originated from the cooperation of the international development agency DFID and the phone company Vodafone. What it means for me as a business owner and for other people running businesses like this is that I pay all my suppliers with M-Pesa, I pay my staff with M-Pesa, but it also means that people can pay for services. So you can pay your electricity bill, you can pay your water bill, you can pay your taxes on M-Pesa. So what our business model hinges around is we've effectively built an energy vending machine. So if people want power, they send M-Pesa to our systems and that credits their account and immediately their line is switched on and they use power as long as they've got credit. As they use power, their credit is exhausted, they get a warning message when their credit is getting low, they can top up again, but effectively they are paying from their phones for the service, which in this case is, is electricity. I spoke with Frederick Egnong, originally from Holland, who settled in Kenya with his family in 1999. Originally working for a religious missionary, Frederick's interest gravitated towards the potential of microfinance to make a real difference in people's lives. He was present at the creation stage of M-Pesa and is responsible for its biggest network of cash merchants, the human part of the process that makes the moving of capital possible. Uh, the other day I was talking to a lady who, who was selling fish at the Jubilee market before M-Pesa. Early in the morning, she took the first bus to her supplier two hours' drive from here, collect the fish, come back. By 10 o'clock, she would set up her shop. If it was a busy day, she could do that trip once more. Now in the evening, she sends the money to her supplier who puts it on the first bus, gets here by 8, and she can revolve her small little capital, maybe five six times a day. Before M-Pesa, 
um, people were sending cash by courier or by matatu because money is is moving the velocity of cash has really improved local businesses and local markets and local economies over 70 percent of people in kenya use m-pesa and although not unique to kenya nowhere else has a single mobile banking platform become so ubiquitous or successful this has created an unprecedented wave of innovation and possibility that is revolutionary for those that live and work here. Is it fair to understand M-Pesa as a type of development? Is, that, is it development work? Of course they sell it like that. They say it's financial inclusion, even though I think the initial funds to develop M-Pesa were paid by Vivid to Vodafone. Um, at the time, nobody was really interested in the payment sector. These agencies started to recognize the, um, the impact of M-Pesa and jumped on it. So how important do you think it is that, that this is a Kenyan-born activity? Kenyan -born. Right. Yeah. Unpack that for me. Why, why, why does that make any difference? As opposed to why would it still not be uh, as useful or as profound for Kenya if it was 100% owned by Vodafone and it was being run from the UK or the US? No, I think the success of M-Pesa is very local. So, yeah, Vodafone maybe brought the platform, but it was entirely set up and run by Kenyans. Sam and his colleague Robert are visiting the island of Magetta to check up on a microgrid system that Steamaco had previously installed. For most people listening to this, electricity will be an unquestioned part of everyday life. Yet two billion people globally live without it, and 36 million of those live in Kenya. Um, we're about a mile or two off, uh, off the mainland, and we're just about to dock into Magetta. Um, a beautiful little island um, with no power. Obviously, running power to an island is a feat too far for a national grid operator here in somewhere like Kenya. So um, this island's never going to get any grid infrastructure, which makes it perfect for a microgrid. Um, it's a relatively affluent island, um, surviving on fishing and various other uh, f bits of farming here and there, but mainly fish. We're just walking from the, the jetty up to our microgrid hub, energy generation hub. You can see the uh, wind turbine currently standing still. There's not enough wind. That wind turbine we built from scratch. Um, and then just behind the wind turbine you can start to see one of the solar panel arrays. Um, also you can see uh, above the houses here the early distribution network where we're distributing the power from the hub. You can see it running from house to house. Located on Lake Victoria, this island is buzzing with life. Children with endless curiosity for what we are up to, as well as cinemas, bars, barbers and shops that comprise a rural town supported largely by its fishing industry. Yes, just uh, it's just good practice. Something I like to do is just check the... Um, Check that all the solar panels are, are performing correctly, that what, none of them have been, you know, the connection is gone or anything like this. Hmm. 
that this one is on, which means that there is AC power. Um, but uh, the actual bit harvesters themselves are off for some reason. I'm not entirely sure why. So, right, but, um, it's interesting to see they're not on today. I don't know why. We're going to get to the bottom of it. We'll find out why. Okay. Yeah. Oh, you know why? Because he's using power for free. That's why. <laughs> yeah, that's why. Because by the time it is off, yeah. uh, the MIDI don't charge it. Yeah. No, so the way this works is that this um, defaults to being on. So it means that if there's a problem, we take the brunt of it, not our customers. Okay. You know, because if someone had paid and the bit harvester wasn't working and the line was off, you're going to get a lot of pissed off customers. So rather, we take that on board and we take the blame, like give people free power if there's a problem with our systems. It was a decision I made to, um, this is a design decision, but that's why when the bit harvester's off, this guy clearly doesn't have any credit. And he's like, woohoo, yeah, free power, let's have a party. Um, so actually, we can kill the power and uh, kill the party. Okay, right, so I don't feel bad about cutting him off. Okay. This is the satisfying chunky switch. Ready? Oh. You just killed the disco, so just kill the disco. <laughs> okay, let's do this as quickly as we can. Development without exception involves access to energy. Uh, yes, I mean, uh, in a very s simple kind of physics sense, you know, nothing happens without energy. So, you know, energy is, is right there in, the, in every single process. There's some assumptions, I suppose, that within your discipline are probably quite straightforward, but perhaps for people listening that they won't necessarily make connections between. Um, and one of them that comes up for me is this idea that tackling poverty and climate change can be a conflict of interests. And I think that this, this runs into differing um, ideas of development. Why would those two things be at odds with each other? A lot of the argument, at least at the moment, in terms of sources of energy that, that are used to achieve economic growth, essentially rests on renewable energies being more expensive than fossil fuel-based energies. Uh, and that... For poor countries and poor people in particular in poor countries, uh, they can't afford renewable energy. They can't afford to use renewable energy. Too expensive to, to achieve economic growth. So it's this idea that renewables are somehow a luxury or even a bourgeois um, option. Yeah. So again, this, the kind of simple argument is, is often summed up in grow now, clean up later. Basically, that's the, the kind of, I mean, the essence of it. So when discussions, which are certainly out there in the, the public sphere, well, the biggest pollution problems are with China or are with India in the fact that they are growing at an exponential rate and they're actually the biggest carbon emitters. Whether there's any truth behind that or not, is that kind of what you're talking about, this, this idea that developing countries in their eagerness to grow and develop um, will burn carbon because it's the quickest way to get from A to B. And, and interestingly, those, 
particular countries, China and India, you know, they're quite good examples of, of what problems then emerge if you do this kind of, you know, grow quickly using carbon and clean up later. That's kind of, well, you can, you can see, yes, you get the economic growth, but then you've got huge challenges actually cleaning up. And while you're cleaning up, if indeed that's what you're achieving, people are dying because of the such poor air conditions. So, you know, is that, in quotations, price of poor human health and worse, is that development? Yeah, there are lots of, there are lots of things that I've learned. And our understandings or our presumptions of how people conceive of what power is is, uh, is fascinating and a lot of assumptions there. For example, people don't give a monkey's where the power comes from. They don't particularly understand that solar is any way better than diesel power. Um, they care about two things. One is the price, and two is if it blows up all their appliances. Those are the only two things they worry about. Um, then following in a sort of distant third are availability, like which is, which is most convenient for me when I want to use power. Power in the day for my business, power at night for my, for my lights at home, that sort of thing. But, yeah, I mean, looking around the island, you can see environmental awareness is not high on the, on the list of, of people who are kind of um, local fishermen and sort of often struggling to survive, struggling against um, drought conditions and fail crops. Steamaco's direct business competition on the island is a diesel generator. Yet many people are using a combination of Sam's solar grid electricity, which they pay for with M-Pesa, and the less reliable, though cheaper, generator option. Robert took me around a few of Steamaco's customers so I could hear for myself what they thought of the service they were paying for. So you know this woman's name, but you've not met her before. Okay. What do you think of the solar panels? And what difference do they make to your business or your home, or how do they change your life? Uh, the lighting system is okay. It does so well in her business because she can work up to late hours using the light. She can at least watch news and from her TV set or listen to news from the radio and all that. Although the pricing is a little bit challenging. Yeah. Okay, so is the pricing challenging because the diesel generator is cheaper? So she says she's also using the two systems, the diesel generator and our system. And she runs a TV and the lights from 7 p.m. to 10 p.m. So Through the generator? Through the generator. Yeah, okay. Because it's cheaper than... Because it's cheaper than us. Yeah. All right. Thank you. We couldn't really operate our services in places which were really, really, really stony poor because there wouldn't be any extra income for people to spend on, you know, in inverted commas, luxuries such as power. But it's the irony is that once power does come to a place, that once a microgrid is available, 
people can start businesses, people can start generating an income, uh, there are more opportunities for young people. Um, so it seems like that potentially is a role for donors, you know, providing that first little energy leg up um, because private entrepreneurial businesses like ours can't afford, can't justify to go somewhere where there is not going to be revenue to cover our costs. However, if a donor could bridge that gap, provide a power system in a village which uh, would allow it to grow, um, it's quite a understood feature to, to growth that the provision of energy and the ability to set up businesses and do things like primary manufacture uh, is fundamental to in inverted commas development um, that's, that's often the reason behind extending the national grid but if it's done with the solar powered microgrids you're achieving the same thing arguably more effectively um, so potentially there's a role there for, for donors You were mentioning before how many academics writing about energy and development and power um, haven't necessarily been to these places so they don't understand the nuances or the surprising, less obvious behaviours of the way people interact with their power supply. Um, do you think that that is a, a dangerous thing um, for academics to have that authority but not really have the, the first-hand knowledge? So it's very easy for me to kind of cast aside academia and uh, be very trite. Of course, it's not as bad as that. But I have seen many, many examples of academic projects which, in my opinion, are never going to fly um, because they are not locally relevant, um, appropriate to the community dynamics in a village. And I've unfortunately seen too many of them fail um, and too many wonderful sounding ideas just fall at the starting posts. So although I don't want to sound like I'm sweeping away academia because there is definitely a role for it and we interface with academics all the time and I'm very stimulated by and we get a lot of value from that uh, arrangement, I would definitely say that in terms of practically delivering a fundamental basic service such as uh, energy, perhaps some of the academic approaches haven't been particularly focused or well-designed. Alin's work, although contained within the more obvious development framework of an NGO, is still directly concerned with the facilitation of business models. Significantly like Sam, she is dependent on building trust and relationships with those she works with. How do you feel that living in Kenya, living in Africa, has affected the way that you conceptualise what development is or should be? I think the biggest change has been the fact that I've probably came in quite idealistic and then realised that it's pretty difficult... <laughs> For someone who's a, a farmer who, you know, is just thinking about how he's going to feed his family the next meal, you know, um, trying to come in and talk about environmental sustainability or a kind of bigger holistic, you know, we need to think about climate resilience and da da da, da. It's very difficult if you don't know where your next meal is going to come from. So that's definitely was one of the big awakenings for me, that livelihoods have to be taken into account as well. 
because I still think that there is this idea that people come from the West and we are the well-educated ones who come to impart our knowledge <laughs> to the undeveloped. You know, that still happens. Alin suggested I go and visit Caleb and his permaculture project a few hours' drive from Kasumu. So tell yeah. me where we are, Caleb. The town you met me is called Rongo, yeah. and that's the district, Rongo district. And it's under Migori County. Okay. Yeah, in Kenya. This is uh, South Nyanza. So you grew up here? I grew up here. When I was growing up, we used to go to the riverside and find so many wild fruits. And there were so many wild trees, and the rivers were so blue, we were drinking from the rivers, very, very fresh water, we swim in it, and then, you know, and then uh, it changed all of a sudden, like in the 70s, they, with the introduction of sugarcane, because GMOs came in the 70s. So before the 70s, around this area, nobody was using any chemicals. Caleb farms coffee, amongst other things, and has fascinating insights into the legacy that aid and development has had on the region in which he grew up. So who bought the sugarcane here? Oh, the government and World Bank. They built about seven factories in the lake region. The monoculture of, okay, we're going to do sugarcane and just yeah. sugarcane, yeah. Yeah. that was very bad for, for the growing culture, was it? It diverse? was really good for a few years. People made a lot of money, but uh, with corruption and other things, uh, sugarcane become uh, very expensive to produce. Right. Because that made People cut a lot of trees and uh, just growing one crop with a lot of industrial chemical inputs. So is part of what you're doing trying to reverse? Yeah, that? trying to like go back to where, you know, what I saw like uh, about 50 years ago. Okay. Yeah, so when I was growing up. So this is what you call a food forest. Mm, it's very yeah. beautiful. So now, you see the bananas? Because like with the permaculture, you cannot just do one thing. So I have also up here, like, you know, fish. fish I was really fascinated by permaculture and the, the sort of framework of thought for development that it gave. And I felt like it has the potential to give a really good framework for development that can be more holistic, that can be better for environment and people and economy as well. So Ellen has made a big difference to your operation here. Right? Oh, yes, from day one, like with the designing, from getting funds, from getting me the markets, he's been a really, really big supporter. Okay, and then even helping you export the product. Yeah, helped me export through her friends. Yeah. You know. So she was here on your grounds uh, two days before she gave birth to Max. Yeah. Wow. We walked all the way up here with the Biovision woman, and two days later she gave birth. <laughs> she was so pregnant. I was. She was like, <gasps> you know. But she would say, Caleb, I have to help you. I have to bring this woman to you. So this is called cassava. Hello, Eileen. How are you? <laughs> Hi, Caleb. I'm sorry. Um, I didn't get back to you yesterday. I'm yeah, but I checked the email. I saw you sending something to Elias uh, saying, you know, reconciling. So because we are I didn't come thinking that I came to teach 
the Kenyans, what that was all about, um, to help them out of their dire situations. You know, that's not the way I was thinking about it. And I really felt quite humbled by the coming here, meeting a lot of people who had an extraordinary amount of knowledge when it came to natural resource management and food security and agriculture. I mean, my background is not technical in that sense at all. I'm a, I've sort of studied development, but I haven't done the kind of technical agriculture bit. So I came in feeling like I can come in as a facilitator of sorts because I have an education from the West and I happen to have come to Kenya because of my husband's work. Um, but I have links and connections and I know how to write well and I can write proposals and I can, you know, I, have, I can make links to funders. And I wanted to facilitate for people with those skills that I could help with. So I, I guess I see that more as a kind of cooperation. What can I do to help you achieve that? So Caleb and I have gone for a spot of lunch at the convenient hotel, which is a little cafe in Ronga. Yes. Thank you so much for taking me round your coffee farm. Mm. Um, I really appreciate that. W what does the phrase or the word development mean to you? Now they call like farming large scale, which is most, mostly monoculture, development. But to me, development is something to be do with sustainability, where you take care of the earth, you take care of the people, you take care of, you know, and you make money. But the one, the, the, the bush word for development now is like large scale, where you destroy, which, even though they make money, but it comes with a, a huge price to environment, water and even you know people and also leads into monocropping monoculture of crops where the big multi-corporation dictates what you plant they will bring the seed they bring you the inputs and then they subsidize it and then if you don't make money you have to pay back the loans and a lot a lot of farmers sometimes they commit suicide sometimes they, re they get so depressed because with the global warming if you plant just one crop large scale and something like you know drought you know comes you lose everything without any insurance a lot of farmers get so depressed and they don't know what to do but it's over and over like for example they will come up with a corn and then a corn disease will come and then wipe out everything and then they come up with a new variety of, of corn which is resistant to this disease now and then four years later another disease comes so it's like uh, they call it development, but me, I call it like uh, poverty. I'm sure most people understand the term economic development, you know, in the sense of to develop economically means that you um, accrue uh, capital and that you have, um, you know, a financial system in which you can do things with. Uh, but human development, in the context of your work and, and some of the things that we've already touched on, um, what does human development mean to you? Uh, to me, it's it, uh, a large part of that uh, is is something that um, Amartya Sen helped to articulate well with his capabilities idea. Um, so development for him is about expanding freedoms and capabilities are part of that. If you like, a criticism that Sen makes about things like economics is that they they're worried about outcomes only and not considering about uh, considering people's capabilities to choose what to do. So human development is about 
expanding uh, those freedoms, freedoms to choose to do what you value, pursue what you value in, in, in life, uh, and you need capabilities to do that, which you know, includes skills and knowledge, but it's also about the, the, the kinds of uh, more systemic things around you. You know, you can't achieve everything that you want to achieve uh, in isolation. You are dependent on others. You have social relations and family relations, whatever, economic relations. Uh, you also, you know, you live in a particular context. There is a government. There are policies, laws, etc. All of these things combine in various ways to enable or constrain uh, your freedoms. What's your understanding of of the Kenyan people? Is is there? Because I got a real sense when I was there, and I was only there for two weeks. There, there certainly seems to be a Kenyan thing. I mean, uh, I experienced the best way I can. I know how to explain it. There's a Kenyan smile, which I've not seen anywhere else in the world. What do you understand to be Kenyan? That's an extremely difficult question to answer. I don't know. I mean, there's a there's a in terms of my African experiences. And that is about the importance of social relations in the culture. I mean, you know, of, of sort of supreme importance that social relations have in a way that, that, that is kind of, seems to be diminishing in, in the richer world, which we, uh, we kind of crave, I think, in, uh, in the rich you know, We're kind of very busy working and you know and then you know the social relations start to become a burden rather than a, a thing that we uh, prize except when we finally do experience the social relations we enjoy them so much we think why don't I do that more often you know um, but that sort of taking time to speak to people to to sort of laugh with people to enjoy human uh, interaction I found to be common across all my African experiences and that is that probably takes different forms in the different cultures, but it, but that is quite common to me, to my experience. I think development, like most things in life is a spectrum. There are lots of different shades of it. Everything from very well-meaning but arguably ill-conceived efforts all the way up to large donor-led development. These are just flags along that spectrum. How that affects or is a part of business, I think is a interesting question because I think business is successful if it's turning a profit, if it's meeting the investors' requirements, that defines the success of a business. And generally, the emotional aspects of it are not really going to turn a profit directly. Indirectly, they might do, because look at the success of something like Greenwash, providing some kind of emotional basis to the activities of an oil company in Nigeria by showing how many schools they're building and clinics they're building is a very effective way of controlling the share price or making it seem like all the huge amounts of other very destructive things that they're doing are not so easily seen or not so talked about. 
but it's definitely a growing south-to-south trade and development that's happening. And it's no longer really the case that the only places to go and get really good degrees is, is the UK or the US, which used to be the case, right? And increasingly, you're getting these people from from Europe coming here because it's difficult to find work in Europe and Africa is a, it's a huge emerging economy and there's not just development work here but there's a huge economy that's like exploding and there's a huge amount of opportunity for business and so the whole kind of access of power is changing as well and I think people come over here not just to do just the traditional development work but it's really a mix these days of lots of different things setting up companies startup companies particularly Kenya that's like a really dynamic hub of enterprise in, in East Africa. I think we both came looking for quite a particular experience which was a sort of very real on the ground experience so for me it's been invaluable um, what I've learned from the different communities that I've worked with people like Caleb and supporting those projects from the start and helping them set up has been an extraordinary insight into also all the challenges that these people are facing definitely I'm a, a bit less of an idealist <laughs> I think, than it was. Also, in that time, there were two kids, and so, you know, on a personal level, it's been an enormous development as well, yeah. From a purely personal perspective, Kenya has developed me hugely. My background, although I grew up in the developing world context and living in various countries, that made me very aware of a lot of the issues around development. My career has been largely academic up to this point. Without question, Kenya and being on the ground has made me very cynical about not on the ground activities and development or commercial activities that are looking at solving very real poverty problems and poverty alleviation problems. I think if there's one lesson that Kenya has given me, and our experiences here, it's that very top-down approaches are very difficult to get right and very flexible grassroots projects are almost invariably a more efficient way of spending development money to achieve development ends. Many individuals and agencies from outside of the African continent have worked tirelessly in the field of development for many decades to improve the lives of Africans. And although the term development is clearly used as a type of simplistic shorthand for the many diverse approaches and motivations involved in a desire to improve the lives of others, it is possible that the most credible and beneficial type of development has less to do with the amounts of money spent and more to do with the behaviour of people. I believe this is the value at the heart of what the economist Dambisa Moyo means by aid-free development. Writing in her book Dead Aid, she is convinced that regardless of motivation, economic, political or moral, aid has failed to deliver the promise of sustainable economic growth and poverty reduction. And whilst her work has upset many that invest in the future of African countries, it's surely true that the shared history of colonization, development, aid and debt relief is a complex social problem 
which will not be solved by finance alone. Further information about all who featured in this episode can be found at www.theglassbeadgame.co.uk And whilst you're there, why not subscribe for free at the top of the site to ensure you get the next episode. Your presenter for this episode has been Will Hood, and the series producer is Rob Alexander. The Glass Beat Game has been brought to you by the School of Global Studies at the University of Sussex and is an Animal Monday production.